Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. In this series, Pastor Kirk Hall will be teaching through the book of the Bible known as the Revelation. At this time, open your Bible as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to your heart. You guys, go ahead and open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we will uh, begin our study. We've had two weeks of of intro, and I hope that this two weeks of intro that we have had built us a little foundation uh, to jump off of to get us into tonight. Uh, Tonight we will actually begin our verse-by-verse exposition of the book known as the Revelation. Um, And in doing that, we will be embarking upon a, a task of endurance. Uh, you are going to have to endure this. We are going to go verse by verse, word by word, line by line. We are going to look at one verse tonight, and that one verse is going to be of utmost importance as we, we jump into this. And so, let's read that together, and we're going to look at tonight the importance of this first verse Verse 1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So we see here that we start out in Revelation 1.1 with the Apocalypsus Jesu Christu, that is, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, that apocalypsis word there in the Greek, uh, it is in Latin, revelatio. In English, it is revelation. It means an unveiling or an appearing or a disclosure. And so we can see that it starts out with the unveiling, the appearing, the disclosure of Jesus Christ. And so as we open this book, know this, we are going to see the unveiling, the full-blown disclosure of the glory of Jesus Christ. And it is, in this book, as we have already talked about in our intro, often misunderstood and over-symbolized. We're not going to do that. We're going to take the obvious, literal approach to the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are going to look at it as it is written. We're going to see that it means what it says, and it says what it means. Tonight we are going to break down this first verse. We're going to break it down into four different sections, and you have those sections on your note sheet. We're going to see the significance of the revelation, why it's so important. We're going to see the source of the revelation. How did this come to be? We talked briefly about that in the intro, but we're going to talk in detail about that tonight. The showing of the revelation, and then we're going to see the surety of the revelation. And so let's jump in there. In the first part of verse 1, we see that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. You've already figured out that That word apocalypsis sounds a lot like apocalypse because that's where we get the word apocalypse in the English. But it is a compound word, and I want you to write this down and to pay attention to that. It is the first word in that compound word 
It is apo. Apo means away from. The second part of that compound is kalupto. Now, you put that together and you get apocolupto or apoco, as we've already said, lupsis. Now, the second part of that word, the first part means away from. The second part, kalupto, means to cover or hide. So it means to take away the covering. Or, as we would say, to remove the veil or to unveil something. And so what we see is when we start this study, right off the bat, we see what this is, the significance of the revelation. And the significance of the revelation is that it is the unveiling of the glory of Jesus Christ. His unveiled glory. Now, at His first coming, we have to understand this, His full glory was veiled. He never lost it. He never gave it up. But His full glory was veiled in His humanity. We can read the Gospels, and in the Gospels we see glimpses of that glory. We see glimpses through His miracles, through His power, through His authority, through His preaching. But there was always a fleshly human veil that kept us from seeing His full unveiled glory. In the Revelation, however, the whole significance of this book is to show us the unveiled glory of Jesus Christ which is to come. The last time that many unbelievers saw Christ was Him dying upon the cross. Only a few saw Him after the resurrection. Many of those unbelievers there those religious Pharisees who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, who rejected him at every turn. Many of them, the last time that they saw the Christ, they saw him brutally beaten and they saw him die upon a cross. Now we have to ask ourselves this question. Will that be the last time that the world sees him? And I'll answer that question for you as John already has, definitely not. It won't be the last time that this world sees Him. They will definitely see His unveiled glory. We're going to uncover that as we study the revelation. The unveiled glory of Jesus Christ. This world will see Him coming again in His full glory, His majesty, and His full authority. We see this in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. It says this, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. One day, He will return to this earth in full glory, in full majesty, that glory being totally unveiled. We see that in Revelation chapter 19. We're not going to jump there, so don't get excited. We're still on 1-1. But when we get to 19, we are going to see the Christ as the heavens are opened, as He mounts the white stallion to come back to rule and to reign victoriously, we are going to see Him, and the whole earth is going to see Him in His full unveiled glory. His unveiled glory. This is the revelation of that. It's also the revelation of His unending glory. 
the unending glory of Christ. Aren't you thankful that our Savior's glory is unending? It is unending. Daniel says this in chapter 7 of Daniel, verse 13. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is the one that will never be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7. Micah chapter 4. Micah says this. He says, I will make the lamb, the lame, excuse me, a remnant. Those driven away, a strong nation. The Lord will, will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. When he comes again in his full unveiled glory, he will rule and reign forever. Luke chapter 1 in the New Testament, verse 31. It says, you will be with child, speaking to Mary. This is the angel revealing the Christ to her. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. We know that the name Jesus means Jehovah saves. You are to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. What a promise from the Word of God. That our Savior, when he comes again in his full unveiled glory, will reign forevermore. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. He's quoting the Old Testament, and he says about... The Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. His throne will last forever and ever. And then we see in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, at the seventh trumpet, it was sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven. And what did those voices in heaven say? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. That is a term used only for eternally. He will reign forever and ever. And so we see the significance of the revelation is to unveil the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and to point to that unveiling. His unveiled glory. His unending glory. So we see it is the unveiling of the glory of Jesus Christ. But it is also the unveiling of the truth of who Jesus Christ really is. Who He is. You've been in our study going through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. You've realized this. Those Pharisees just could not get who Jesus was saying that he was. He kept telling them over and over again, I am. Ego I me. He was revealing to them, I am God incarnate. I am God in flesh. They would not receive that. When Jesus returns and his full glory is revealed, he is going to unveil for them the truth about who He really is once and for all. We've learned this. Many are blinded because of their sin. 
Many are blinded because of Satan. The unbeliever in this world is blind. They can't see who Christ is. However, they are going to see exactly who He is. They are going to see that He is the one and only Christ. The one and only Messiah. Matthew chapter 16, 16, Peter's confession. And what did he say? Simon Peter answered. Christ said, who do you say that I am, Simon? Simon had all the ideas in his mind and had heard what everybody else was saying about Christ. And Jesus was basically saying, it doesn't really matter what they think. What do you think, Simon? Who do you say that I am? And Simon answered. He said, you are the Christ. What was Simon saying? You're the Messiah. You are Emmanuel. You are the one who came from the Father. You are the Savior. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. In this statement, what Peter did is he was confirming the lordship of Jesus Christ. He was confirming his deity. What is going to happen when Christ is revealed the second time? Everyone is going to see that. It will be a confirming of his true lordship and his deity to all of those who are in Christ, who have trusted in him. By faith, who believe in Him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, it will be confirmation. He returns. But it will also be condemnation. It will be condemnation for all of those who despised and who rejected Him. Isaiah 53, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah pins this under the hand of God. He says in verse 3 of 53, He, speaking of Christ, was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, understand Isaiah was writing from the place of a Jew hundreds of years before Christ looking to the end and seeing at the end that when Christ returned, that everyone is going to realize that He truly is who He claimed to be when He was on the earth. And the unbelieving Jew is going to say, we despised and we rejected Him. That is what Isaiah is getting at. He is at the end looking back and realizing He is the Christ. He is the one who came to redeem us. At His unveiling, all will see exactly what Jesus came to do. Who He was. What He came to do. What He came to do. What did He come to do? In the Gospel of Luke, it's very clear. Jesus Himself says this in 19 verse 10. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. He came to seek and to save what was lost. But unfortunately, unfortunately, John in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 10, says this, He, speaking of Christ, was in the world. And though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. As Isaiah 53 says, they despised Him and they rejected Him. They did not see Him for who He is. 
nor for what he came to do. Isaiah 53, we see this as we continue to read there in verse 4. He says, surely he took up our infirmities. This is the unbeliever realizing later on down the road, looking back, surely he took up our infirmities. He's speaking as if it's in past tense. Isaiah wrote this before Christ. God allowed him to see this in past tense. He said, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. For all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the, tra- for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, here's the resurrection for you, hundreds of years before it ever happened, he will see his his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. We see Isaiah again hundreds of years before Christ writing exactly what happened on Christ's first advent. And Isaiah is telling this story from the unveiling of Jesus Christ that will happen in these last days. He is looking backward to it and saying, surely he is the one. When Christ is unveiled in his full glory, the truth of who Christ is will be unveiled just like his glory is unveiled. And many will look to him and say, surely, surely, this was the Christ. Surely, he did bear our iniquities. Surely, he did die in our place and suffer a brutal death that belonged to us. He is who he said that he is, and he did what he said he came to do. Titus chapter 2. Paul says this in verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, 
and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. As we wait for his glorious appearing, he is going to appear in his full glory. If you think you have any idea what that means, let me explain this to you very clearly. Are you listening? You don't. You have no idea. No man has seen the full glory of Jesus Christ. As we study the revelation, we are going to get glimpses of what that is going to be like. But only on that day, only on that day will we fully understand exactly what this means. But we know Revelation 5.9. It says, and they sing a new song. Those heavenly hosts singing a new song. And, and what did they sing? You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. One day, just as they know in heaven, one day the whole earth is going to know exactly who Jesus Christ is because He is going to unveil Himself. Now this is the significance of the revelation. Don't forget this. As we travel through this glorious book, the significance of what we are going to see, that significance is never going to change. The main thing is never going to change. And here is the main thing. The glory of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who came as a lamb to the slaughter to purchase men for God. We're going to see Him return to this earth in His full glory. This is the significance of the revelation. We get a glimpse of just how that's going to happen. We read on in verse 1. And as we read on, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave. Which God gave. It goes on and says, which God gave Him. To Him there is Christ to show His servants what must soon take place. God gave the revelation. The source of the revelation is the Father. The Father gave this information to the Son. The Son passed this information to an angel. The angel made it known to John on the Isle of Patmos, as we're going to see in just a few verses so that John could record it. We're going to see why he did that in a moment. But I want you to see that the source of this is God. Why is that significant? It is significant because we can all pick up our Bibles and say that we believe that this is the Word of God. And it is. But when we get to the Revelation, we struggle with all of the things that surround and have surrounded the Revelation for years. The thought mystery. The thought unclarity. The thought symbolisms. And let me just tell you this. Most of the time when you think that there's symbolism because someone told you there was symbolism, there is no symbolism at all. You are to read it just as it is written. But the same God who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 
is the same God who gave this revelation to Christ, who gave this revelation to an angel, who then in turn gives it to John. So I want you to see what you have in your hand when you hold the 22 chapters of the revelation. I want you to see this. You have in your hand a gift from God Almighty. A gift. And that gift is to have a look into what was the first part of of verse 1? The unveiled glory of Jesus Christ. You want to get to know Christ better in your life? We will studying the revelation. I assure you of that because you're going to see His glory like you have never seen His glory before. And it is a gift directly from God. From the Father, to the Son, to an angel, to John, to the early church, to the church throughout the ages, and then to us today who have it in our own language, in our hand. Why? So that we can see the unveiled glory of Jesus Christ. What a privilege! What a gift God has given that gift. I know at that time many want to ask questions, right? He gave it to the Son. The Son gave it to an angel. Who was the angel? We really don't know. We can speculate. We can draw some conclusions. Possibly Gabriel. It could possibly be Gabriel because we see that Gabriel delivered messages in Daniel. He delivered a message to Mary. He delivered a message in Zechariah. Could it be Gabriel? It could be. But it doesn't really matter, does it? Just fun to think about. Scripture doesn't really clearly tell us, so we have no clarity on it. We can only speculate. Did God use angels to deliver messages? Yes, He did. And did He at times use the angel Gabriel to do that? 100%. He did. John, we know this. We talked about it when we talked about the author. It is John the Beloved. The Apostle of Jesus Christ. The young man who followed Christ at a very young age. Many scholars believe he was probably 14 or 15 years old. The Apostle John began to follow the Christ and he stayed loyal to Christ all the way unto his death. He stayed loyal to Christ even through persecution and pain for the name of Christ. And so we have in our hand a gift. A gift. Shouldn't we approach all of the Scripture like that? That it's a gift from God. But we know that it specifically tells us here that God gave this gift. And we have a gift from God in our hand that is to be treated and valued as such. A gift directly from the hand of our Creator to Christ, to an angel, to John the seven churches of Asia, the churches around the world at the time, through the churches, to the churches throughout history, and then to the church known as Key Life Fellowship in New Caney, Texas, of all places. God cares about us enough that He has allowed that gift to travel through history and to make it so that we could have it tonight and open it up and began to study about the unveiled glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and what a privilege it is. 
Often we neglect to see the Word of God as a gift, don't we? And to value it as such, it, it sits in some obscure place on a bookshelf, in a cabinet, never to be opened, never to be valued, never to be seen as the gift that it is. Oh, hasn't the enemy been crafty in causing us to take it for granted? To forget that this Bible that we have in our hand today came through the blood of many, many, many martyrs down through the ages. And thanks be unto God that He has preserved that gift. That He's made a promise with that gift that the grass and the flowers, they wither and they fade, and that the Word of God will stand forever. This gift that He has given us. We neglect it. Unlike the psalmist, the psalmist in 119 of the 119th Psalm, he says this, and you can turn there if you would, Psalm 119. Because I want us to, in this study, to value the Word of God like we have never valued the Word of God before. Let's look and see what the psalmist said in regard to the Word of God being a gift that is to be valued. Psalm 119. Verse 9, the psalmist values the Word of God because he writes in 119.9 these words, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your Word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is the Word of God that is a gift to us so that we can walk in purity. So the psalmist shows us that we can receive purity from His Word. Not only purity. In this same psalm, we receive preservation from the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 37. said, Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to Your Word. Drop down to verse 107. And you'll see this. I have suffered much Preserve my life, O Lord. Watch this. According to Your Word. The psalmist valued the Word of God as the gift that it really is. I want us to understand that the Word of God is a gift. It brings purity. It brings preservation. It brings hope. 119.49 The psalmist says this, Remember Your Word to Your servant, for You have given me hope. You've given me hope. 147 talks again about hope there in 119. He says, I will rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. Does the word mean something to you men? Is it the gift that God is telling us that it is? Is it the gift that the psalmist realized that it is? We're not done. We receive comfort from his word. Psalm 119, verse 52. 52 states this, I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Do you find comfort in His Word? You see it as a gift that it is. Direction from the Word of God. The psalmist understood direction from God's Word. 119.105 119.105 And the psalmist says this, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I receive direction from your word. You light 
my path. You show me where to walk. What a gift it is. Psalm 119, 133. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. The gift of direction from God's word. What about the gift of joy? The psalmist says this in verse 111. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. The gift of joy comes from the Word of God. Then we have protection. 114, you are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your Word. Truth, the psalmist said in verse 60 of 119. Verse 60. He says, I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Why? Because they are true. Psalm 119, 165. There is peace from His Word. Peace from His Word, 165, tells us this. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. How about understanding? The gift of understanding from the Word of God. The psalmist gets it. In our day, we don't get it. It is a gift from God that we access through His Word. Psalm 119, 169. And the psalmist says this, 119, 169. May my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding. Not understanding as the world gives. Not instruction that the world gives receives. He says, give me understanding according to your word. Why would we in a study in Revelation spend time looking to the 119th Psalm? Because the psalmist understood that God's word is a gift. It is a gift. And I want us to see the gift that we have here in the Revelation. The source of the Revelation is God. He gave this gift so that we can study it. Not so that we can be afraid of it. Not so that we can be intimidated by it. He gave us this gift. Why? What did the first verse say? So that we can see and prepare for the unveiling of the glory of Jesus Christ. It's a gift from God. We will approach the revelation the entire time as the gift that it is. It is a gift we have received directly from the hand of God. It is a gift from God, but it is a gift that is graciously given. Graciously given. Any of you here today deserve anything from God? Hell. And anything better than hell, I assure you of this, is God's grace. And He has graciously given us this book so that we can study it. So that we can endure the task of studying. It is a gift of His grace. From salvation, to protection, to eternal life. And now as we look at the revelation, we must recognize that these things all come to us directly from a god is full of grace. This is a gracious gift to us. What is going to happen in the end, though no man knows the day 
or the hour. And they never will. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop listening to people who say they haven't figured out. No man knows the day or the hour, but God has graciously given us the unveiling of Jesus Christ and this book of the Revelation so that we can prepare for the things that are to come. Revelation 1 verse 4 at the very beginning of this. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. But I want you to see what 4 says as this letter really begins. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before His throne. Grace and peace. I want you to see that the revelation starts in the fourth verse. John addresses the seven churches and the first thing that he reminds them of, grace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace from Him who was and who is and who is to come. Revelation 22, 21. Revelation 22, 21. There at the very end. You can turn over there if you want to. You know what the revelation ends with? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. You think God's not trying to remind us and to get our attention to the fact that when we have this revelation and we do open it up, it is a gift of grace from God Almighty to His people. We deserve to receive nothing from God. We deserve to receive nothing from a God who is so holy, who is so magnificent, who is so perfect. Yet in Christ, notice how this gift transpired. It was given to Christ. And Christ then gave it to an angel, who then gave it to John, who then gave it to the churches. Christ is how we access the grace of God. This book is a book of grace, of grace that was given to us by God. Know that He is the source of the revelation. Third thing, as we continue in verse 1, he says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants what must soon take place. The showing of the revelation. Who is he showing the revelation to? It's plain and simple. It says to show his servants. This letter was never intended for just any person to pick it up and to begin to read and understand it. That's why so much confusion has happened surrounding this book throughout the ages. Unbelievers reading it, giving their take on it. It tells us right here in verse 1, this is not for the unbeliever. This is for God's servants. It's not for the unbeliever or for the philosopher or for the intellect. It's not for them to understand. Those are all natural resources. Those are natural men trying to understand supernatural things. It's a gift to God's servants. If you're a believer here today, I can assure you of this. You can understand the revelation. And it doesn't matter what people have told you in the past. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you because you are truly saved, and if you are truly saved, He dwells in you, 
You can have understanding of the revelation because you are one of His servants. The Greek word for servant, we know that He gave it to His servant John to give to His servants in the church. That Greek word, unfortunately, is a lot stronger word than the word servant. It is the word doulos in the Greek. And it is better rendered slave. And it is even more accurately rendered a slave who willfully submits himself to the will of another. He is describing what a true Christian really is. He is a slave. The word servant at best is a weak and an unclear translation from the original. The original indicates a willful slave. That willful slave that we see in Exodus chapter 21, verse 5. This is the slave who was set free and who then willfully returned to serve his master. It says, but if the servant declares, I love my master. Verses prior to this, he was set free. I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free. Oh, we've been given freedom in Christ, but our freedom is not so that we can go out and live any way that we want to live. Our freedom is so that we can submit to His authority as our master and our Lord. Then His master must take Him before the judges and He shall take Him to the door or the doorpost and pierce His ear with an awl. Then He will be His servant for life. This is what the word doulos is talking about. It's talking about true slaves who serve the Lord Jesus Christ in righteousness. He's talking about true believers. The message of the revelation is for those slaves, those faithful slaves only. To those who have truly, honestly surrendered to Jesus as Lord and Master, is He your Lord? Is He your Lord? Is He in control of your life? If, if He is and He is in control, you have surrendered to Him, I can tell you this, this is for you. You are a doulos. That person who has been set free from their sin and who says, yes, in the rest of my days out of appreciation for the One who has set me free, I will serve Him with all of my heart all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my strength. That is the true doulos. We see that is who the revelation is going out to as He shows His servants, those doulos servants. To those of you who have surrendered to Christ, you are one of those. To those of you who haven't, you are not. I pray that by His grace that He would set you free so that you could be. So that you could be. So that you can understand not just the words that we will study in the Revelation. You can understand the full grace of God that He offered you on a cross 2,000 years ago when He came to die in your place to rescue you. So He's writing to His faithful slave, John. John had proven that he truly was a faithful slave. Since, as I've already told you, a very young age where he began to follow Jesus as his Lord and as his Savior and Master. 
He had undergone great persecution. Just a little history. He was boiled in hot oil in an attempt to kill him, yet he lived. Then as we know and we learned in the intro, he was exiled to Patmos. He was exiled there to suffer for Christ alone. And he did. He proved that he is truly a faithful servant even in his suffering, even in his persecution. He persevered in his faith, never recanting, never walking away, abandoning his faith in the Lord. I want to assure you of this. When a person walks away and abandons his faith in the Lord, he never knew the Lord. Scripture is very clear. He went out from us because he was not of us. John never did that. John stayed faithful, proving that he is truly that doulos, worthy of that title. Christ was obviously his Lord and his Master. And so this letter was to the servant John. But it was also to his faithful slaves then in the seven churches of Asia Minor, but also in the churches throughout the world and the churches throughout history. To many of you men who are in this room today who are those doulos slaves who Christ is your all in all. He is your Lord and He is your Master. This is to you. He's showing His servants his faithful slaves, what is going to happen. He says, revelation of Jesus, Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. You're in Christ. You are that do lost slave. This letter is for you. It's not just for preachers. It's not just for theologians and scholars. It is for the doulos slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you. I can speak for myself. I'm excited to be able to study this verse by verse with you men, the slaves of Jesus Christ in our community, and in our area. So we see that he says it is for his servants, his slaves. You see the showing of the revelation. Who did he show this to? He showed it to John showed it to the seven churches in Asia, Asia Minor. Who showed it to the other churches in the world during their time? Who showed it to the churches in the next generation? And in the next generation? And in the next generation? And so on and so forth. Until we get to open up this gracious, God-given gift Today. In 2022, in New Caney, Texas, of all places, and we get to see the glory of Jesus Christ unveiled before our very eyes. We move to the surety of the revelation where we will end tonight the last part of verse 1. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending an angel to his servant, John. What must soon take place. The surety of the revelation. I want to clear this up because there's been lots of debate throughout the ages. It says soon. And this was written nearly 2,000 years ago. What in the world? So there are many people who doubt because in their mind it, it didn't come 
soon. I want to help you out before we conclude our time together tonight. Soon here is not a reference to something that takes place in a short amount of time. That's where the confusion comes in. It's not something that takes place in a short amount of time, but it speaks of being imminent. This is a term of imminency, that it is going to happen quickly when it begins to happen. This has led to a lot of confusion and just a little study in the original language. I assure you of this, all confusion can be removed. The Greek here is a word, and that word is takas. Takas. And takas has the meaning of being imminent in this verse. Not of being in a, just a short amount of time. And so when we understand that word, now we're going to understand everything from this point on in the Revelation as imminent. Why is that important? Why is it important that we understand the imminency of the unveiling of Jesus Christ? Because it could happen at any time. We need to understand that. You say, well, I have done some research, and I bet you have. We all have. And those who have done their research, they will say something like this. Every generation of the church felt that it was going to happen in their day. To which I say, good, you get it. You understand that it's imminent, that it could happen in any generation. Has it happened yet? Absolutely not. Is it going to happen? Absolutely so. Is it going to happen in our generation? I sure hope so. But I don't know. But I know that it could happen right now. And when it begins to happen, it is going to trigger a series of events. And we are going to cover that series of events. We're going to watch it all laid out. We're going to see that series of events. But you're going to know something when we get into that. That when the events begin, they are imminent and they move swiftly through the course of time. Once these things are set in motion by God's sovereign timing. No one can stop them. And so when we look at this, the surety of the revelation, what is the surety? Is that it's going to happen in our lifetime? No. The surety of the revelation is that it's going to happen and it could happen at any time. And that's what we need to understand and that's what we need to prepare ourselves for. Even in Paul's day, uh, we know this, and, and the church at Thessalonica, they were in a debate because there were some false teachers there and there were some ideas that had popped up. Um, there were people saying that, well, we've missed the rapture because it's taken a little more time than, than we think it ought to have taken. Uh, there were many people who were saying, yeah, the second coming has, has already happened and we just missed it somehow. And Paul has to go back in the fourth and the fifth chapter of the first Thessalonian letter. He has to go back and he has to straighten some things out. And he speaks in the fourth chapter and in the fifth chapter of two significant events. He speaks of the rapture in the fourth chapter. For many of you, you say, well, I don't believe in a rapture. Well, just read the fourth chapter of Thessalonian letter and you'll change your mind. Just read what Jesus teaches in John chapter 14 and you'll change your mind. Just watch Jesus ascend into heaven. People say, I've never seen a rapture in Scripture. Really? You don't remember the ascension of Christ where he was taken up? That's what rapture means. 
But we see in chapter 4 of Thessalonians, Paul says, okay, there's the rapture, then there's the second coming. In chapter 5, he makes two distinct differences there. And he speaks of both of these and gives them some assurance that these things don't happen quickly in regard to time. But these things are inevitable and they are imminent. And so when we study the end, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, I want you to know this, it is inevitable. How do I know that it's inevitable? Because God said it was going to happen. And it is imminent. How do I know that it's imminent? Because God's Word says that it's imminent. So he's talking about the things that must soon take place. These things are inevitable. These things are for sure going to happen. You can mark them down. Everything that we see from chapter 1 to chapter 22 is inevitable. It is going to happen, and it's going to happen exactly how God said that it's going to happen. There's no stopping it from happening. It's already been decreed in eternity past. It has been decreed through the prophets. It was decreed by Christ Himself. And now it is being decreed by this letter that we have that was a gift from God to Christ, Christ to an angel, an angel to John. It is going to happen. It is inevitable. These things will take place according to God's perfect, sovereign time clock. It's interesting how each generation wants to rush it. I can tell you this, I want to see it. And I'm going to. But I don't want to rush it. Because it's going to be like everything else in God's timetable. Perfect. Perfect according to His sovereign time clock. And let me just tell you this, the clock has already been started. People ask all the, all the time, are we living in the last days? Yes, since the ascension of Christ. We have been living in the last days. Those things are going to unfold exactly and according to God's inevitable decrees and His plan. It's already set in motion. Looking at this and seeing that it must soon take place, we see that those things are inevitable. But they're imminent. This means that these things could begin to happen at any time. It could begin to happen at any time. Uh, since all of the eschatological events that we see in Scripture don't happen simultaneously, because they don't, we can gather that at any time, the series that you see happening in the Revelation, that that series of events could begin at any moment. We're going to talk about when we believe that this is going to begin. What is going to trigger all of this when it happens according to God's plan? When it happens imminently. It's going to happen imminently by God's design. What do I mean by that? God desires every generation of the church to long for it to be their generation. Long for his what? Appearing. That's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, There's a crown of righteousness that awaits me, but not just me, not me alone, but for all those who long for his appearing. That's why we are to pray, even now, come, Lord Jesus. Even now, to long for that, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse, Jesus Christ. To long for that day 
to happen, for those series of events to begin to unfold. This is God's design so that every church throughout the ages lives their lives as if it was today. This moment. That's what imminent means. That God could begin the series of events that we see here in the unveiling of Jesus Christ to live your life as if this were to happen tonight before you put your head on a pillow. We have to live with the same thought that he desired for the early church to live with. That it could be in our time. Could be. Can I say that it is for sure? Again, I tell you, absolutely not. I would not be so foolish as many have been. And look, the part I assure you, how many people have predicted the end and it didn't come. Good thing it's not the Old Testament because they would have stoned them. We're not here to look at the Revelation to predict the end. We're looking at the Revelation to say it's inevitable and it's imminent. And to encourage each other to live a life that says it's inevitable and it's imminent. So how do we wrap this up? Surely there's some application to this book of the Revelation, right? Surely it's not just a bunch of, of knowledge that we can attain. And Of course there is. Some application. And what we've learned tonight in this study, to the believer, I say this to you. Be excited about the future unveiling of Jesus Christ. Be excited about the revelation of His full glory and His majesty and His kingdom that will last forever. Be excited about that. If you're a believer here today, it's not too hard to be excited about that. We are going to be there in that kingdom with Him forever. Be excited. To the believer, I would say this. Live your life in view of Christ's imminent return. In view of Christ's imminent return for His church. Because if you believe in a rapture, you know that he is going to return for his church first, and then there is going to be that return to the earth. And when he returns to the earth, he returns to the earth, he's going to return as a valiant warrior. He's going to destroy wickedness and evil from the face of the earth once and for all. But live your lives as believers. Like you really believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Live your life that any moment He could call you to that place that John 14 says He has prepared for you. And He says, and if I go away to prepare a place for you, will I not also return to take you where I am? Where is He? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. That means this, before we come back to the earth with Him, we have to go to heaven and dwell with Him for at least some point of time. Now, we're not going to get into all that tonight. But we will. But to the believer, live your life like it's this evening. To the believer, warn others. Warn others because His second coming to the earth is going to be a second coming of judgment for the unbeliever. Warn the unbelievers that Christ is coming back to this earth. That it is inevitable. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. There is going to be the great white throne judgment after the return of Christ. 
where all unbelievers will be judged for their sin and cast into the lake of fire. We're going to see that in the Revelation. Warn them. You say, well, I don't want to offend them. Hell is going to be full of people that Christians were afraid of offending. To the unbeliever. Maybe you're here tonight and you're an unbeliever. You don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would say this. Turn to faith in Jesus Christ today. Repent of your sin before it is too late. Cry out to Him as the only one who can save you from your sin and the judgment that is going to come upon you unless you repent of your sin and believe on Christ. Surrender to Him tonight as your Lord and Savior. Why? Because I just told you the things that we're going to see here are imminent. They can happen at any moment. Are you ready for that? If you're an unbeliever here today, I can tell you this. You are not ready for that. You are only fit for wrath and judgment in your sin. Cry out to Jesus tonight. Confess Him as your Lord and Savior. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And you shall be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You say, well, I'm not sure. I, w- I sure would like to talk to someone. I'll be here for a while when we're done. Please, come talk to me. Talk to one of our staff members. Talk to one of our elders. Don't leave here tonight lost. Why? Because the apocalypsis, Yesu Christu, is imminent. It's imminent. You need Him to save you before it's too late. Let's pray together. Father, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. As we look at one verse tonight, small glimpse into your majesty, Lord Jesus. We are overwhelmed by who you are. Father, we thank you that you care enough about your children to give us this gift. To pass it down from your son to an angel to John to the churches throughout the ages so that we can look at it now. What a privilege it is to be able to study your word, and to see the unveiling of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray for the soul that doesn't know you, that tonight they would repent of their sin and believe and trust in you as Lord and Savior and be saved. Lord, I pray for the believer who is here tonight. You would fill them with excitement. Excitement because we get to study this gift of grace that you've allowed us to have. May we approach it as such. Speak to us. Teach us. Prepare us, Lord, for the day that we get to witness everything that we're going to see in this study face to face. And we give you all the glory for it. We pray and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world.